Hello and welcome to Kifaru Cast today, folks. This is your guest, Aaron Hitchens of Rock House Motion, and I'm here to interview these two clowns, Aaron Snyder and Frank Peralta. How are you boys doing today? I'm good. <laughs> that was that was very enthusiastic. I like it. I like yeah, you Canadians. I was just in Canada for 11 days, and uh, gotta say, Canadians are a lot nicer of a people than Americans. Are you going for a rip? What was? How was Canada? And it was awesome. Um, I was up there with uh, Jeff Lander, uh, hunting bears up with uh, the crew, of the primitive outfitting crew, and man, can't say enough good things about Jeff. He's just a great dude to hang out with, and uh, yeah, we had a great time. And weather was awesome. British Columbia, is that where you're at? I'm in. Uh, I'm in Alberta. Oh, same thing. He's lying. He's in Texas right now. I'm in Texas right now. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing down there, man? Uh, we're working on a. RV commercial. So we're working with a company called Thor Industries. They own a number of subsidiaries in the RV space, like Airstream, Jayco, Keystone, Dutchman, basically like 60% of the RV market share. And so they've asked us to help them sort of make RVing great again, get people out camping and get them using their units. So we've been doing a number of shoots for those guys, and it's great because it's, uh, it's in the off-season, and every, every dollar you can make when it's not hunting season, is a dollar you don't have to make in hunting season. So we're, we've been going pretty hard at it. Is it, uh, remember that on Snatch? Pretty Winkle Blue. What the fuck do I have a caravan with no fucking wheels? <laughs> have you ever seen that, Hitchens? No. no Dude, no. you got to watch more TV and stop making it. You're missing out. you got to watch Snatch, <laughs> yeah. man. You like Dags? <laughs> oh. That is probably true. <laughs> I, I, uh, yeah, I don't watch much. When I'm home, I try not to try not to be inside. Yeah, unless I, I'm working. Yeah, that's the thing. I'm gone so much when I when I finally get inside. We don't have like uh, cable or whatever, so we watch we'll watch movies. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, so probably probably watch them a little too much, especially movies like Snatch, which was I think it's won like three Academy Awards. And <laughs> what are the other two? I'm kind of scared to ask. For movies, I watch True Grit a lot. I watch uh, that movie, The Town. Um, you know, I probably watch True Grit, Unforgiven, Jeremiah Johnson. Oh, man. Ah, what's a new one I watch a lot? I'm trying to think. Uh, oh, John Wick. I've watched the shit out of John Wick. It's great for Keanu Reeves, too, because he can't act that well, and so he doesn't have to say much. He just shoots everyone, and it's uh, pretty realistic as far as the uh, CQC or CQB, depending upon what you call it. Anyway, uh, I'm off the subject now. <laughs> <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard good things. I actually heard that Keanu Reeves like, uh, started shooting three-gun pretty actively. Yeah, he's, prepared for that. Yeah, he seems to be pretty good about it. Holly Berry, Holly Berry, whatever, she was on there the other day. There, like, she's she on John Wick? On the, the new, new one. one, and she's like several levels of hotness higher now because she was laying down rounds um, on a, on a three-gun shoot. It was pretty cool. It is impressive how somebody like Holly Berry, who I distinctly remember thinking was beautiful in my teenage years in James Bond, is still hot. It's good. She must be doing a lot of backpack hikes. Something. Or Botox. Botox, yeah. <laughs> there goes there goes your opportunity to sell that fitness dream, boys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're striking out a lot on that lately. 
That has yeah, been actually well, a, a topic we should do another podcast on, kind of the, the chess pieces of the outdoor industry and how people get shuffled around. It's almost like draft day sometimes and free agents and who gets paid what. And, uh, uh, and then, you know, as far as the, the monetary stuff, it's pretty wild how it works, but that's a totally different podcast. It is, but when that day comes, you know, what I realized this season is that I'm actually the perfect hunt athlete. So... You wouldn't think so if you saw me, and especially if you saw me with my shirt off, but basically the way that the hunting season's built and the way that my body is built, are they go perfectly hand in hand. Because it starts out, sheep season for us in Alberta, you're just climbing, so it's all about legs. Well, that's my strength, right? I can, I can climb and I can carry heavy stuff, so I, I get going, and we don't have a ton of elevation, so my legs are sweet. Well, that trains up my lungs, which is great because next comes elk season. Elk season is all about lungs. You just run in, and there's lots of, you know, generally a little bit more elevation, faster pace. And then your lungs are good. Well, in that time when you're taking a break, trains up your eyes. Well, that's good because next come mule deer. And you're looking and you're glassing and you're, become, you know, you're dialing your way in. And that gets you used to sitting still, which is great for whitetails. And whitetails is all about heart. I mean, people talk about heart when it comes to the mountains and the backcountry, but when it comes to all, you're, you're doing an all-day sit in the ground blind, like, there's, that's another level. That's passion, right? And then after that, your heart's good and your blood's flowing great, which is important because it's waterfowl season, and waterfowl <laughs> season's all about that liver. And, then, and, and that brings me back to my other strong suit and my Canadian origin, and that gets me the whole way through the season. So whenever we're talking about that free agency, I, I am. I, I would argue that I'm basically the prototype for hunter fitness. So uh, I'm out here. Man, that's that's solid wisdom right there. Um, I gotta say, the you're right though. With I, I'm not a duck hunter, but the problem with the good thing about whitetail season is at your peak fitness level before you sit in the stand, because it's going down the shitter quick. The moment your butt hits the stand, <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of. Um, you know, not a lot of daylight, so there's a lot of, you know, camp time, which means there's a lot of food time. And then, uh, you know, when you're sitting in the tree stand and you're bored, Frank, you might be worse than I am. I'm not sure. You kind of have a problem with eating everything at one time. Yeah, cereal. Cereal and pizza. If I have a box of cereal at home. It's, like, gone in probably two days. I can't eat. I can't. I'll eat an entire, like, that big uh, Brady Bunch size thing of Raisin Bran. I'll eat it all and crap out a baby's arm the next day. It's bad because I'm not used to it. And then I eat it, and then it's like it's it's literally like a it's like Drano coming down the pipe. It's bad. Like it's not good in the tree stand. I can tell you that. There's a couple times where I just couldn't get down in time. It was rough. Every year in hunting season, I'm like, this is the year that I'm gonna start being fit, like forever. You know, I'm gonna be like a, one of those fit people. And then white tail season comes, and like at the end of October, I'll be like, you know, running around. Do like chasing late season sheep and then jump down and jump up in that tree stand and by the end of November it's like climbing into a tree stand becomes like Everest. You're yeah. wearing a couple extra layers and you've been eating nothing <laughs> but that home cooked goodness. Yeah, that's a fact. Oh Lord. Well cool man. Yeah. Well we'll stop interrupting with the squirrels here. Lay it on us. What questions do you have? Yeah, well, what I wanted to do, and I better switch back to my radio voice here, but what I wanted to do today is give you folks an opportunity <laughs> to understand what makes the Kifaru process different. Basically, everybody out there listens to these knuckleheads talk about things and pontificate and, and tell stories, but I Will think you look that, up you know, pontificate? What, 
<laughs> Go ahead, sir. Yeah, just Google for punting. <laughs> uh, but but what I you know has always impressed me is that when just the quality of and it's probably what's brought a lot of people to this podcast is the quality of the product. But for anybody that's not a current Kafaru owner or has a, an older product or has a new one and is looking at another one, I just wanted to try and understand what the process is like for you guys and how you uh, how you go about how how you go about your business. So what I wanted to do is start out with like a pretty broad question about like what do you believe is the core differentiator? What makes your product different? Mm, there's ah, there's several things, and Frank, you mind if I answer? Go ahead, give um, give her. All right, I'm gonna give her all the way, full rip. Give um, her. <laughs> you have been in Canada. Going for a rip, are you, bud? <laughs> um, I I when I mean, obviously, the, with Patrick Smith and and every you know, made in America, Patrick kind of pioneering a lot of things. All of that being set aside, um, you know, the the one thing is we are a hundred percent American made, not. You know, sewn in America with Asian components. America. America. Um, and, and there's a lot of companies that do stamp the American flag on their product, but it's actually a lot of it is is Asian components. And there's a lot of companies that say they use Cordura. Uh, there is only like one actual Cordura. Uh, the rest is is actually just a knockoff or a, or a copy. Um, and we we do actually use Cordura from the actual factory <laughs> that, that produces that. Uh, as far as on the... The testing side of things, um, people, I think, I'd say get jealous probably of me and Frank's lifestyle. Frank, a little more recently, um, the amount of field time that uh, we have for for testing all of the gear, not just Kafaru gear, but we get tons of gear to test. And, you know, what we're able to do is... uh, because of Bender, who's kind of the big brain upstairs, Frank and I can call in with a uh, an idea or a pack and explain it to him, and he can actually hand draw it. He's a very talented guy. He can draw out the picture, text the photo of that picture back to us. We can look at it, change it, and he can have it ready for us to test by the time we come back off the mountain. And then when I'm on the mountain... Um, we may have to climb a little bit, but we can FaceTime with him, call him, tell him what needs to be changed. He can change it before we get back. And that's not that's fairly unique from a lot of the other different companies. Um, just the amount of testing we can do, why, you know, we'll do certain specific things. Uh, and I, I think that's one of the biggest things that sets us apart is actual field use and, and able to change things while we're in the field because of the technology today. So I wanted, there's a couple questions that spin out of that to me right away. So one, when you talk about everything being made in America, what what are the components, right? We have Cordura, and we know that there's some stitching going on. What else is, is generally in your bags, and where do you source it from? If you know it, like as specifically as you know, if you can tell people, I think that would really drive home that kind of American-made message in, in contrast with some of the, the competition you might be talking about. So when you have like layups, for example, when we when we have our go to make the patterns of the packs, when you say a layups, that's how many different materials. So if there's four layups, there would be a layup of Cordura. Part of the pack is Cordura. A layup of the four-way stretch nylon, that's another uh, type of material. Pack cloth is another type of material. And then let's say mesh for the internal pockets. There's also the zippers, whether there be the number eight or number 10, all the buckles. The When you talk about buckles, it's not just the male-female buckles. It's also the posi locks, which is like what you put the cord through to tension something up, uh, the plastic common loops, three-bar sliders, K-clips, which is something we invented. All of that is made in America, all the webbing, um, 
even our composite stays are actually they're made here in Colorado, but all of that is American made with American components. So when I say that, meaning the thread is actually American made, the buttons, the buckles, posi locks, 550 cord, all of that is made in the United States. Now, I will say, you know, there's a price difference between what I would say is a, a realistic competitor of ours. We're usually 150 to 200 dollars more expensive. Well, sewing is sewing. Their sewers are no different than our sewers. Where that comes from. A lot of that comes from is if we used Asian components, which look a lot like American-made components, those components are significantly cheaper. And where you really see the difference is those components are fine in a perfect world. When you get into extreme cold weather situations or something gets shut in the door, and ours will break if you shut them hard enough in a, in a door of a bear cub or something, but um, the, the long-term durability... Um, and the overall just resilience of that specific buckle or webbing will last longer. Those are the, the big things. Um, as far as, um, you know, the different like companies or whatever, there's several different webbing companies. Um, I'm actually not going to list those because I really don't want people to find out because one of them specifically, we use them more than anyone. And, and I really don't want all of our competitors using them, but, um, like, uh, the, the buckles, there's a couple different companies that are American-made, um, and we're using the—I uh, think I should mention that. You know what? I'm not going to mention it, but <laughs> but it's an, it's an American-made company. There's only a couple that actually they're American-made. So. I think uh, I think one thing that's important to, like, just what Aaron was saying, there a lot of—there's well, a, a few companies out there that, that, that are American-made, but I think— what they leave out is it's American made, but not using American made components. So that seems to be a bit of a loophole, um, or just a, a bit of information that's left out. Because yeah, you're, Aaron's completely right. It might be sewn in America, but we're actually using 100% American made quality components where others might not be doing that that exact thing. And if and if you think of it, it it's really comes down to the initial soup or the batch when you talk about when the um, uh, all the different mixtures for the components, you know, initially it's going to be um, uh, like mass produced. And when it's mass produced, there's fillers. It's not, and I'm, I'm definitely making this pretty broad, but um, you think of a protein powder. Not all protein powders are made equal. Some of them are more pure. There's no fillers. There's nothing to, you know, you can you can throw basically empty protein in there or empty fillers in there. It'll up the contents, let's say, of the protein, but it's not actually a, bo a protein that a body will assimilate. Um, it's no different with buckles. When, when you have fillers in there, when you don't have the correct substances to make that buckle tough, it's an inferior product. I mean, I don't do a lot of thinking about protein powder, but I think I know what you mean. <laughs> so think where about does like that commitment whiskey. to using American-made <laughs> product come from? Like, what's the origin of that? Is that is that something that you know? Uh, I know that Patrick, you guys are both in the military. No, no, and I mean, really, my military service people bring it up all the time as far as here, but I don't tactically wise, or, or as far as the tactical side of things. Um, it doesn't have a whole lot to do with what I do here. I mean, I have friends in the military, and I can speak some of the lingo, but what what it actually derives from is Patrick uh, Smith started Mountain Smith, which is an American-made backpack company. When he sold that, he stayed on. Uh, this is a quick story. He stayed on as the chief designer. When they went overseas, he saw the big downfalls of that, 
And so when he left that company, again, this is the short version, and started Kafaru, he kind of swore that he would um, stay with American-made uh, components because of the downsides or the downfalls of, of what he saw what, from what um, uh, Mountain Smith was to what it became after they outsourced. That's, a, that's an interesting point, and, and I think that brings up kind of one of my next questions is, can you just give us a brief history of, like, uh, you know, Patrick's involvement and then where you guys fit into the mix and, and you know, kind of the, the history of the brand a little bit. Uh, well, Patrick started Mountain Smith in the 80s. Um, and I'm going to throw in Dana Gleason, Gleason in here. He Dana Gleason owned uh, Dana Design, which is um, – uh, the only reason I bring that up, there's a there's – a, I wouldn't say they're buddies, but Patrick and Dana are um, – you know, competitors, but have always been gentlemanlike or as close to it as you can. Uh, Patrick owned Mountain Smith. Dana owned Dana Design. Dana sold um, Dana Design, I think, to K2. And Patrick sold uh, Mountain Smith, basically, and stayed Mountain Smith. Uh, when that, after that happened, uh, you know, a few years after uh, Patrick started Kafaru International, and, you know, that's when he was really able to focus more, obviously, on the military, the tactical stuff, as well as focus on staying American-made. Um, you know, the company grew, uh, you know, moved into a couple different buildings as it grew. I think until I came on board, they didn't think they were going to need another building. And then we grew exponentially once I came on board. And then Frank came on board to help me out and has, and has basically become a me that's actually way better at adulting than I am because um, I suck at getting orders out and things like that. So Frank kind of filled the voids of where I was lacking. And, you know, the company now is seven times larger than it was eight years ago, I guess. So we've grown quite a bit. And, you know, Frank handles a lot of the tact. Well, a lot. He handles all of the tactical contracts. Um, he handles a lot of the pro staff stuff. You know, he also is a face of Kafaro, meaning one of the guys out in the field testing and hunting. And so it was what Patrick really wanted um, in, in, in guys in the field, guys that would it's kind of a prerequisite that we're in the field all the time or Patrick makes fun of us and tells us to get our asses out of the office. He wants us out there using the product so we can speak intelligently about it um, as well as find downfalls of it, ways to improve it and, and things of that nature. And so that's the short, short version. And, and what we're doing now is what Patrick did back in his heyday, uh, which is just in the field hunting constantly, uh, beating the crap out of the gear, seeing how we can prove it. Frank, you want to add to that? All right, I nailed it. Frank's not adding to it. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. That that is that's you know that's it's a pretty interesting thing, and and one of the things that stands out to me the most about your company is that I'll be rolling through Instagram, and all of a sudden there'll be a new pack. Nobody's talked about it. Nobody there's there's no been hasn't been a campaign about it. No teasers, nothing. There's just a Snyder in a backpack, and there's usually a sleeping bag or two snuffed in, stuffed in there. And that is so different, right? I work in a world of marketing where if a product's going to launch, there's cases when it's two years out, we start working on building hype and like everybody's really hyper driven to create to selling that one product. And I'm not saying that one method is, is right or wrong, but yours is certainly more unique where you will introduce and sort of actively refine stuff. Why do you do that? Instead of making one flagship backpack, why do you make... You know, if, if I'm going to go elk hunting next year, I could think of, 
like off the top of my head, like seven of your bags that I could maybe use. Why do you why do you make it that way? And and probably more than seven. Oh, one of the initial reasons is um, everybody hunts differently. Um, you know, not just elk, but we have guys that are in the tactical community that use their pack for deployments, come back, use it for whitetail hunting, and then they'll also use it for elk hunting. And uh, and everything else in between. And so we try to make enough options, which were far less options than some companies and more than others, but we try to make options that fit for any scenario. So I don't know, Frank, let's to make a comparison, the 44 mag and the reckoning, which are two of our biggest sellers, the, the 44 mags brand new, the reckoning is a center zip, uh, pack. They're both about the same size. It has pockets on the left and right side that are open. They're slotted pockets. There's no zippered closure compression systems close to the same, um, bag size is about the same. Well, if somebody's running a really tall tripod, let's say somebody's doing a lot of film work, um, that slot pocket or, or they're running walking sticks, fishing gear, um, you know, uh, fly rods where they're running the tube out the back. They don't really need a zippered pocket because they're running stuff past the actual height of that specific pocket. And so, and they may need faster access to it. They don't want to use the, they don't want to have the penalty of the zipper closure. And so that reckoning and the way it opens may cater to some people where, you know, the 44 mag and the way it works and the zippered closure pockets, they may want to put rain gear inside, spotting scopes, camera lenses, and they want it zipped closed. So would one work for the other? Without a doubt, but there's going to be some kind of almost like a curb appeal or how you look at a woman. You know, some guys like blonde, some like brunettes, some like boobs, some like butts, some like whatever. <laughs> and so there's going to be what that initial gingers? attraction. Some people like gingers, strawberry blondes. We got one. We got a. We got a sauce for everyone. And and we try to. We we do that because of all the feedback we get from you know the from the tactical as well as the hunting community of of what they might like. But it does make so, it confusing. Yeah. So do you guys find it? Well, it's not necessarily that it's confusing. Um, yeah. It's just. It's interesting because it's it's not the norm and it's not on like a on any sort of schedule that I can tell. It's just you know, and I think that in my opinion, it actually adds to what your true your best quality as a brand of the standout one is just authenticity, where you guys are being yourselves right here on the show, uh, and the and product. It's just like we made it. Here it is. There's nothing in between. And uh, while that's not necessarily good for my career in marketing. It's it's working, but so the question I have next is like, we all have preferences. You might like strawberry blondes. How do you go and design a pack that's for somebody that has a different set of preferences than you have? It can be difficult. The one thing I'd say I'm I'm getting better at, and Frank's good at, is we try to step back of what we want. Uh, because we don't pay for the backpack, so it doesn't really matter what we want. And that is one thing that I would say. If Patrick had a downfall. He didn't care what other people wanted as much as what he wanted. And sometimes he would come out with exactly what he wanted, but he got them free. And so it didn't, you know, it would pertain to the people like Patrick. But what we've done is is we are able to take the advice from others. We'll come out with something um, and kick it down the pipe. Say, hey, here's what we were thinking you wanted. Are we close? 
Um, you know, it may be one guy, it may be 15, 20 guys. They'll take a look at it and be like, well, I kind of wanted this compression strap here. We'll talk about it if it makes sense. You know, because if he ends up being the 1%, we're probably not going to design to the 1%. Um, and so we just have to take feedback. The 44 mag was really a collaboration of probably, what, eight different yeah. major people. I think I think one thing that's different about Kafaru is that uh, just the accessibility to Aaron more than anybody, and then you know people can contact me through social media. But Aaron's fact, phone number, contact friend, <laughs> yeah, Aaron's <laughs> phone number is on is all over uh, you know the Rockslide forums, Facebook, Instagram. If you need to get a hold of him, um, you can get a hold of him when at, basically almost at all hours. Theoretically, theoretically, listen, I've tried to get a hold of Snyder a lot of times. I know. <laughs> If he has your number, he might screen your I, call. I was going to say, if you're a friend, you may not get the answer. But if you're a yeah. customer, I'll, I'll generally answer. Yeah, and so, I mean, that that I think that goes a long way. And um, like Aaron was saying, we, we get a lot of feedback of what people like about certain packs and what they don't like. And then we um, were able to turn that around fairly quickly with design. So I think the accessibility to Aaron and myself is another thing that sets Kafaro apart from, from other companies because you don't generally get that – um, customer to to CEO um, relationship that you would with uh, with Kafaro with other companies. So I think that's that's something that's yeah. huge. That's unheard of, and that's a really good point. I think uh, if you combine that with what you're saying, you have a really iterative design process where homeboy upstairs whose name escapes me can sketch things up and we just call him the brain. Him. He's the brain, <laughs> the big brain. ass brain. Yeah, but- he is also a but, ginger. But, you know, to be able to make those adjustments kind of semi on the fly is, is pretty cool. Now, you know, when you're designing these things, it sounds like you're almost designing them more for different people's preferences than different specific purposes, right? Because the packs are a fairly significant investment. And once someone has a bag, you want to be able to use them for everything. And you're, do you see that as being, you know, designing for situations and specific uses or designing to meet people's needs across a bunch of situations. I don't know that those are mutually exclusive of each other. I think that those are actually probably the same or the way that we look at it. So we'll take uh, Aaron Hitchens, who you have, uh, from what I understand, an uncanny ability to carry heavy weight. Um, you, you'll you strap on ridiculous amounts of things on your pack. You may need a it may be a more, in your mind, an exclusive Aaron Hitchens pack. But then if you look at it, how many Aaron Hitchenses are out there? There may be quite a few. And since we have all that feedback, if what you're designing or telling us makes sense from what other feedback we have, we will take one of the more subject matter experts and run off of what he wants and then bounce it off those other people later. So let's, let's talk about real quick a pack, we, the, the Stalker pack. So we have a pack we just designed with South Cox for a final approach pack. And that initially was designed by Frank, myself, and South. And it's the idea of you've dropped your big pack. um, You're pulling off this kind of assault final approach lid. Um, What we wanted was a pack that was able to handle, you could pop your boots off and stick it in the pack while you're wearing your socks. It was low profile. It could also handle the essentials you need. Um, 
the way that it buckles to the pack is also the shoulder strap. So it's a one-inch webbing shoulder strap, uh, but it also that webbing will buckle to the to the top of the pack or the frame, so you can get it super tight up high, uh, so it doesn't sag down. You unbuckle that, loosen it, buckle it to the bottom of the assault or the final approach pack. Now you have your shoulder straps. What the beauty of it is is also if you're laying on your side you don't want a lot of movement, you can move your right and left hand down, unclip those shoulder straps, and go straight into a low crawl without a lot of movement. Um, that was the initial, uh, part of that was the initial design with all of us. What we've changed, even when Frank was gone, uh, was feedback from actually six other of the more sneakiest guys I know. So those aren't going to be the only seven, eight, nine sneaky guys on the world. We're just a going to assume that what all of us want, which was pretty damn close to the same, the other really sneaky guys are going to like that. So it may have been for South initially, but we feel with all the feedback we've gotten, it's going to fit the bill for a lot of different people that, well, let's look at Nick, right? Nick, Nick's a, a stick bow guy. Um, and I get them confused between Nick and Matt, but Nick's the stick bow guy, right? Three brothers, Nick, oldest, Matt, middle scott youngest nick is the stick bow guy that or he shot a, a great bull and a 200 plus inch white tail with a stick bow last year which i would argue is like the great american hunting season uh, <laughs> matt is my business partner um, and matt matt's the best hunt cinematographer i've ever seen and he's he's been a part of a ton of really epic hunts and he's killed like 193 inch Whitetail, and it's his turn. He's he's long overdue for some good stuff to happen because man, he's filmed a ton of it. And then, uh, and then Scott is the youngest brother, and Scott's the one that shot that mega giant with the um, splits off the back is like two twenty six or two twenty nine last year in Kansas. And uh, but Scott Scott is a pretty adept stick bow hunter as well. But Nick Nick certainly leads the charge in that regard. Yeah, I mean, so if you take like stick bow guys, compound guys, even guys that um you know, hunt with a compound that can generally get pinned down for maybe one, two, three, four hours um, on a stock, you know, this, this caters to them. And so we have other things that are kind of close to it, but not exact to this. So it's easy for us to say, hey, this one pack we've been selling a couple years, it's not selling that well. We're a small business in a small building or relatively small. Um, we're just going to shit can that, get it out of the line. We're going to reintroduce this new one. And when we reintroduce it, there's going to be like a week early buzz. We're just going to let people know, hey, it's about to come. That's just not just to let people know. That's so we don't have to deal with the damn returns of something else they bought. And then they're like, oh, I really should have bought that. And so it, it slows down some of the returns. And there is no, if there was something that South didn't like about it, let's say we had a hit time of June, but South didn't like something about it or Frank didn't, then it's coming out in July and we're going to mess with it until it comes right, uh, comes out right. The only problem with that is, and this just happened with the 44 mag, my prototype was lighter than the final one, and we had a guy go ham on us on Rock Slide because it ended up coming in six ounces heavier than my prototype. And my prototype was what we went off of for everything, and then, and this is our fault. We added a few things that I don't use. I don't use a meat shelf, and I don't use a water bladder um, compartment. And we added those to it to make the potential consumer happy because just because I don't use it, there's a lot of people that do, and that added weight, but we screwed up, and, and we weighed my prototype pack that I've been using for about six months for the final God. weight. 
<laughs> yeah, that seems uh, that seems like an honest mistake, but uh, yeah. So, 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 tell us about this whole meat shelf water bladder thing. I know that you you have a bit of disdain for both of those options. Frank, are you in the same opinion about those? Yeah, I don't I don't use either. Um, I'm more of a. I mean, I guess Aaron and I are fairly similar, but I like a very simple pack. So, and and, and I will say we're not. Frank is the farthest thing from a leg humper to anyone I've ever seen, which is probably what I admire him about him most. The first time we went backpacking together, it literally, and you didn't really, I mean, you knew who I was, but you didn't know my gear. You didn't know, Frank and I did the exact same things. We had the same thought process, the same methodology. Um, one of the reasons I don't like a meat shelf, and this is on a big pack compared to a small one. If it's a day pack, it makes sense, right? You got to put the meat somewhere, but... I would say on seven different occasions, we've had an animal down, and uh, and this isn't necessarily Frank being with me, and I'm the one not using the meat shelf. The meat is loaded in the pack, ready to roll, and I am a mile down the trail by the time they get done reinventing the wheel to use the meat shelf. Now, if that's their cup of tea, I am by no means saying that it doesn't make sense. But I'm a simplistic guy. I put the meat in a dry sack. I put it in the middle of my bag. I put everything else in there. I've done it for years the same way, and it's the fastest, most comfortable, most efficient way to do it. The thing with the meat shelf that I have found, and Frank, you can add to this here in a second, is most people that like a meat shelf like the concept of it before they've ever used it. So in their mind, it has to have a meat shelf. They don't want to get their stuff bloody. They don't want to, you know, whatever. And uh, they don't have to put it in their main bag. And it's super, you know, that people have made the meat shelf a cool thing. But when boots on the ground, in my opinion, you are never going to meet, beat Frank and I down the trail because we'll be loaded, ready to go, more comfortable, more efficient than anybody using a meat shelf. So, so two questions out of that. One is, what dry bag, like what size dry bag do you pack with you? And which, do you have like a specific recommendation that's light enough to work well? while not being too heavy or that well that doesn't leak because you know you go too light and it just leaks anyways it could be as simple actually as a garbage bag um we've we've used that before for transport i use a 55 liter uh outdoor research dry sack um that's about as much as anybody can humanly handle anyway with debone meat um and so uh, for me, I generally have one of those in my pack. That's also my hang bag for my food. That's a dry sack for anything I need. And then once the rubber meets the road and, and, and shit's hitting the ground, that's what we put our debone meat in. Sometimes, though, it can be a garbage sack. Sometimes it can be a, a super light, you know, lightweight still nylon bag. And sometimes we don't use anything at all, and we'll just put the game bags in the pack, and that's it, Frank. I think you did that more than on one occasion last year. Yeah, I've certainly done that one, but when when uh, when you're on a multi day and you're picking your sleeping bag out from next to the next to the, the meat, it's not always necessarily ideal. So that's a good that's a good workaround. Now the the second thing here is, all right, you you've at least said this to me. I don't know if this is company line, but it's like if you don't use the meat shelf, shelf like cut it out. Is that something you actually advocate? Just slicing shit out of there that you don't want to use? Yeah, which is way different i even have videos of how to hack packs apart which patrick about shit a willy over but to me um i'm not an ultra lightweight guy and we've gotten into this argument not argument this discussion with people frank when's the last time you weighed your gear 
I don't think I've ever really weighed a, a pack before a hunt, mostly because I know <laughs> I already know it's going to be heavy, so I don't want to really know how heavy it is, which I think is pretty surprising to a lot of people is we don't necessarily always weigh all of our gear. And I'm not like, uh, I don't nerd out a whole ton on, on having the most lightweight gear. I like to be comfortable. Um, and if that means bringing a little bit more food or a thicker ba- a thicker pad or maybe a, a heavier weight sleeping bag, then I'm not going to sacrifice comfort over saving a couple pounds. And really when it comes down right. to it, a couple pounds isn't, isn't a deal breaker for me. And, um, we've said it before, you know, if you, if you work a little bit harder, uh, on your training, your training, uh, hikes and working out in the gym, it's not going to be a, a huge deal. So. And, and I'm in the same boat as Frank. I don't weigh what goes in my pack because I know what I need and the weight is inconsequential. Now, guys have been like like freaked out on me over that. And I'm like, guys, I'm not saying I grab the heaviest shit on the planet. I buy the lightest, best gear I possibly can. But if I have a choice between an MSR reactor, which is a heavy stove, or a Soto Windmaster and an Evernew cup... If I'm doing a day or two, three nights, I'll do the lightest thing possible. I'm not that worried about it. If I need an absolute no-fail system, I take the MSR reactor because I know it will not let me down. And it's a little bit heavier. And I don't give a shit, and I don't need to weigh it because I need it in my pack. So if it's in my pack, I need it. I don't overpack. I just put in there what is actually needed for that specific trip. And the weight is inconsequential because I have to have what's in the pack. And I don't, I don't know. Sometimes people can't wrap their head around that, but I, uh, it is what it is. I've got what I need. I can't take anything less. I don't need to take anything more. The weight is what it is at the end of the day. Well, and that's something that's really interesting. Been interesting for me hunting with Logan is that I start to see weight. Like the weight of the pack is just one factor. What it really comes down to is energy, right? Like a heavier pack takes away energy, but if you can make that extra weight add more energy, whether that's through a restful sleep or through not shivering because you're not cold or through having more food. And we then, all know Logan and I shiver like a bitch. <laughs> oh, man, it's unbelievable. <laughs> she's so stoked this year. She's got a doobie that she can carry around. So she'll just be like, every time that it's lunch, she'll just be wrapped up in that thing trying to <laughs> trying to nap off the... Uh, nap off the lasagna mountain house that she'll probably eat 20 consecutive <laughs> but uh that's nasty <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what'd you say i said that's nasty i hate that lasagna but 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 you're right you're you're robbing peter to pay paul uh sometimes and it, it makes sense because one of the reasons and, and i mean Frank, I think you would agree with this we never talked about it one of the reasons Frank can i go basically for infinity is we're never uncomfortable. There's never sleep deprivation other than the fact I don't sleep that much, but we're never left wanting for something. I mean, you're left wanting for certain things, but we always have good food. We always have water. We always have good enough sleep. We always have good shelters. And so we can basically, well, like we did on the mule deer hunt, we went 12, 13 consecutive days on an extreme backpack hunt, went back in enough time for me to go to the doctor went back in and we're just as effective. We never really lost a step. When you start sacrificing weight, you're losing durability and comfort. And when you start losing comfort, you're talking about sleep deprivation, food deprivation, water deprivation, all of those things. 
you lose strength, you're losing cognitive skills, thought process, you're crabby as hell, you're hungry as hell, you're not as efficient going up the mountain. So I would wager to say if Frank and I went against two ultralight guys, let's say, what do you think is a fair assessment, 10-pound pack weight difference? Probably, yeah. Frank and I will outlast, and this isn't like a, a big dick thing, Frank and I are going to outlast most, guy, most guys with our pack for the simple fact we're comfortable the whole time. That it's that simple. Yeah, no, and I think that there's another really good element there um, that you mentioned, is, which is the, your cognitive ability and your focus, right? Because it's one thing to be out there and, and be hunting, but it's another thing to be hunting effectively. Like, those are two very different things. And if you're not focused and you're not, you know, if your eyes aren't in the glass, it's like, I'm glad that you're out there, but at, at some point that, that makes a pretty substantial difference. So I, it's cool hearing you guys say that because that's certainly been my philosophy, not necessarily by choice, but because Logan gets hungry. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, we've been rolling we've been rolling fairly heavy. Now, you guys did introduce an ultra lightweight frame. Which one do you use now? Do you use that ultra light frame or do you use the traditional duplex? We use the duplex light. <laughs> and why? Um, oh, I, I was waiting for you to <laughs> awkward silence. Uh, um, well, part of that's kind of, I'd say, not a biased opinion, but as we designed that thing, as it was grunting down the pipe, we, I'm speaking for myself, I can't say for Frank, we found that that thing was like the best of all worlds. It wasn't the lightest on the market. It wasn't the heaviest on the market. It was just one of those that ventilated well. It carried weight well. It was extremely durable. And for, for me, it was a one of those game changers where I'm like, okay, this is it. You know, like... Um, this is going to be able to handle ridiculous amounts of weight. It rides extremely well. I don't mind the ultralight either. Um, you know, either one's fine, but it, it just did, it, it, it checked all the boxes for me as far as what I needed on a, you know, on on a backpack hunt or any hunt. Yeah. Now, now here's a, a thing that I, that has always stood out to me that I don't know that people know, but you can actually change the bag between the frames. So explain explain that to people that might not have had experience with it or might have you know not have poked around the website, but like what's the what's the background of that and how does it work and, and why do you guys do it? Well, the we've had a few different frames over time. I'd say we've probably had four, five, I guess, over the last twenty years. Um, and the the duplex frame is what they're all based off of. Um, you know, right now we basically have a, a tactical frame, which is really like our standard duplex for the last years and years and years and then we have a duplex light and ultralight those the duplex light and ultralight are skeletonized um they have a cross member that helps with bowing uh the foam's a little bit different um basically the same platform where like the tactical frame comes into play is really if you're carrying super crazy awkward loads where something could jam you in the back of the skeletonized pack um it's pretty much indestructible that cross member on our frame can be broken it's extremely difficult to do it but it could be broken um you can't really break anything on the tactical frame um at least not really that i can think of i guess you could rip something off of it but um you know, if you're if you're throwing shit out of a Black Hawk and just need something that never will break, the tactical frame will work. But um, I think out of probably, I just figured it up, 5,000 plus frames, we had 14 duplex ultralight or light frame cross members break. 
So if you do the math, I mean, percentage-wise, it's far less than 1%. So, you know, the chance of one actually breaking are slim, but it is there. Um, but again, the difference is if I was, you know, like a survival expert carrying firewood, you know, if I was like bushcrafting like crazy and I'm strapping bamboo and sticks or chainsaws and things like that, I might opt for the tactical frame. But for everything else, um, that duplex light is pretty hard to beat or the ultralight. Did that answer your question? It kind of did. It was step. It was kind of the first step. So basically, you, you your process when you're ordering a pack is you select between those frames, and you put in your sizes, right? Because you guys stitch these to order uh, to to fit whoever orders it. To fit. So the frames um, are built all ahead of time. The actual frame sheet, and we have a plethora of we have different shoulder straps um, and belt sizes. And so when you enter in that we're going to put a specific shoulder strap on it and then adjust the length of that to your sizes. The belt is going to be to your waistline size. The curvature of the, like the back profile is going to be to what you enter, whether you have like a, more or less what it boils down to is a curved lower back and big, like a big butt, or do you have like the standard white man butt and no curve? All of those things come into play when you order, and that's for the tactical or the duplex light and ultralight. Um, as far as choosing the frame, a lot of that will re require maybe sometimes an email unless you know the system. So hypothetically, Aaron Hitchens never bought a Kafaru pack. He hops on and he emails me and he say, hey man, I hunt mostly sheep, goat. I do a lot of uh, ultralight uh, long distance backpacking trips, you know, 10, 12, 14 days, but I occasionally hunt moose. Since I hunt moose, should I get the tactical frame? My immediate response is, hey man, I've packed out multiple moose with a duplex light. Um, if you kicked moose out of the equation, the ultralight would work great for you. But since the moose is involved, I would get the duplex light frame. There's plenty of attachment points. Don't worry about the tackle. It's just not needed. And here's the bag you want. And then we just go over your sizes after that. So you go over those sizes, you get a frame and you kind of, you know, that frame, at least from my experience over the course of a season or two will like really start to fit you well. Like you figure everything out and straps and it just sort of starts to hug properly. And then what if you want a new bag? You you know, say I got a reckoning and I don't use a tripod and that 44 mag comes out. What's the process to get to get a new bag? How much do I have to buy a whole new pack or, or do I just get the bag? Just the bag. You hop on and, and order the bag. Um, some guys will have already figured it out, like you said, through the seasons, how the system works. And then when you get the bag, if you don't know how to attach and detach, there's videos that people don't seem to ever watch but there is videos explaining it all or you'll call you just pop the old bag off and put the new bag on and that's something i really wanted to highlight because i think that it's pretty cool you know that frame is a big investment and as long as you don't uh, have too gigantic of a physical change you can pretty much get a frame and, and use it for quite a period of time i don't have like karen said i don't see mine breaking anytime soon but if you want a you know a smaller bag for day tripping or you drew a tag in way up north and you want to go for two weeks, you need the biggest bag they make, you can interchange those on a single frame. So when you're looking at that, the pricing of everything, once the frame's bought, you're kind of good to go. So I think that's something that's pretty cool about you guys. Uh, and it lightens kind of that commitment when you're like all in on uh, all in on Our current bags, which is, we found this out yesterday, they fit to... Uh 
a frame that's up to 12 years old. So if you have a frame, there was 12 years ago, there was a kind of a change um, in uh, the older frames and our current. So you can actually put one of our current bags on a frame that's, um, you know, 10, 12 years old, uh, which is pretty hard to do. Also, you can also do like a tune up. You can, um, you know, get and swap out your shoulder straps as well as your belt. So if you've put like a lot of field use after five, six, seven years, you can swap out the shoulder straps and belt and kind of give your, your, your frame system a tune-up. That's pretty awesome. So, you know, if I don't have the money to spend or say I just bought a different type of pack or, you know, I'm a, just somebody that doesn't have the money to go all in, what is a product that's less than 100 bucks or, or something along those lines that you guys make that you think is like, if you don't believe it, go buy this. And, and it'll sort of prove the point. That's a smaller thing that still proves what Kaparo can do. Man, I, I would say probably the most it um, bought and probably copied is the pullouts. Now, there's a big argument of it's just a pocket with a zipper on it. But to my knowledge, Patrick came out with those in the 80s. And you can look at any current company out um, that's our competitor and magically, they have the exact same pocket that we've had since the 80s. Now, is it just a pocket with a zipper? Yes, it is. But, um, you know, that was something Patrick kind of kicked out years and years ago. And, and it's just a ditty bag. It's it's different size ditty bags that are super handy, whether it be a med kit, your food, uh, your possibles pouch, your clothing, you, your sleep system um, to car- compartmentalize what's in your you know, your pack. And, and those are something that's well under a hundred dollars that everybody likes. And there, yeah. And, and it's not just, that's not just a backcountry use case thing. I just, when I got dressed this morning, I pulled my underwear out of one that I travel with all the time. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I truly, uh, well, you know, <laughs> too far, bro. Yeah. We, uh, when you talk about that, clean. Hey, clean or dirty, right? Whatever. Right? Yeah. It's pretty, I, have, if, I literally have one that has a big red piece of tape on there, which is not very weight conscious. I understand. But uh, big red piece of tape that says dirty. So that whenever I'm, <laughs> I'm and I don't remember, I just tuck it in there. Logan, uh-huh. Logan keeps her makeup in one. It's like her makeup bag. So she'll be like rolling through the airport. I'll throw her, go to touch up her makeup. She pulls out this like tactical ass lightweight pullout. <laughs> and everybody's just like, what are you doing? Well, but I mean, uh, it, a it's good true. Point. Yeah, I mean, we have people that I suggest to... Um, not everybody listens, but like in your vehicle, I suggest for people to have not necessarily a pullout, but some type of, a, not a bug out bag, like the zombies are coming, but to have something in there that has a whoopee um, or, or a doobie, one of our survival blankets that has flares that, you know, all the different things you might need if you get stuck in the snow or, or you know, whatever, that's not mutually, you know, like just beneficial for backpack hunting. And we uh, work some with kind of the bushcraft crowd um, with some of the packs we make and everything, but there's a lot of things that we sell, whether it be, well, I would say Wooby is an example, to soccer moms watching or a football game that wrap up in and on the sideline to uh, pararescue PJs, uh, pilots, things like that. Um, the Wooby is probably one of the, the best things we have. And I've had a lot of guys hop on and say, oh, it's a poncho liner from the military. And it's like, yeah, I slept under one of those. The difference is ours doesn't suck. You're going to stay warm under our blanket compared to a lot of the other ones that are out on the market. And, and our outer shell of that material is colandered, so it's also an, an amazing wind blocker too. 
Yeah, because that's the same material that you make the first light park out of, right? Yeah, it's not actually the first light parka. It's called the uh, Uncompadre. But yeah, the Lost Park parka. Lost Park. Yeah, my bad. Uh, <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Two different I'm companies. Fired. It's all right. It's, yeah. <laughs> first, yeah, good point. Right, just, a, just a competing fan. Uh, <laughs> whatever, and it's not even one I work for, so it's not a, it wasn't a conflict of interest, I promise. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so that, that was an interesting point. So tell us about, a little bit about the design behind the sleeping bags and the, and the shelters and what the origin of those was and, and where they're at their best and where they're not. Oh, the, the shelters was actually Patrick pioneered that. and I mean, there's guys that chime in but truly patrick pioneered the man packable stove and teepees um that was just a need he wanted to be able to um because he was you know he's in the woods 365 right he's out there all the time he wanted to be able to sustain for long periods of time with what he could have on his back and not survive but sustain like thrive and so he went to town and, and, you know, started designing all kinds of crazy different man packable stoves and, and teepees. And, and again, like I said, he, he pioneered it. And so that was just out of what he wanted. It wasn't an initial demand, but it is now um, to be able to pack in, dry out your clothes, cook on it. You know, all the, the great things that a, a firebox or a heat box has. Um, and so that's where that came from was 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 years and years. I mean, even late 70s, 80s is when he was working on those. Um, as far as the sleep system, Patrick just about died in a down bag. Um, two different areas. Uh, one was on a caribou hunt. And was, one was in Alaska because his down went flat. And so the current sleeping bag with the center zip, where that's come from is just a sleeping bag. You can get totally soaking wet. It'll still keep you alive. The bag can be dry and you can be damp, get in it. And the, uh, the bag will, will suck the moisture off you dry. Actually your clothes, if they're not too wet overnight, if you put them in the foot box, um, you can, in the case of, of, uh, some guys roll over and pee out of it cause it's a center zipper. You can have your weapon ready out of it cause it's a center zip with the multiple zipper chain, um, zipper pulls you can glass out of it if you're freezing to death on a sheep or a mule deer hunt you can get in on the side of a mountain um so the exterior shell is much more durable than the standard like 10 or 20 d you get in the ultralight sleeping bags um and you can no matter how wet it gets you can survive in it so how do you guys decide what hunts you bring a safari bag and which one which hunts you bring another a different type of bag on um, I would say when it's freezing, like, oh my God, cold, we'd be able to w- bring a Western mountaineering. Um, that's about all we use, I guess, is yeah. Western mountaineering or, or Kafaru. If it's so cold that wet is not an issue, sometimes we'll bring a Western mountaineering. Um, and then we have an ultralight, um, sleeping bag to where we know the weather's not, um, there's not really any inclement weather coming and we need to just go super freaking crazy lightweight we have like a, a, a lightweight down bag or we'll bring our body bag or just a whoopee um you know and it just depends and obviously i'm being way more candid you know i'd like to say oh we run only kafaru we do for 80 percent of the time but there's occasions where i mean we will we'll run something else and that's just how it is trying to be honest i can about it yeah well i think you guys do that with your shelters too you're not afraid to post a picture in, in a hellberg or speak to their we like good benefit. gear so that's we're pro, we're definitely proponents of good gear <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing to be in your role now now let's ask that same question when would you take a safari shelter versus when would you take a hillerberg or another type of tent 
traditional tent. You want to get that one, and I'll answer after you're done. Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me is kind of piggybacking off of the uh, ability to have a stove, um, especially later in the season when when you're on a backpack rifle hunt. Um, say, like I, I try to go to Idaho every year with my buddy Jordan um, for uh, for mule deer, and coming back to a, a warm shelter where you can, you know, especially when it's snowing and it's windy and it's cold, coming back to a shelter with a stove, and that's... Uh, that's kind of the game changer for me. Um, we usually take the, his sawtooth, or we'll take one, like one of our uh, bigger teepees, um, and that just comes full circle with the comfort thing. Coming back to a, a warm shelter on a, on a after a long day of, of glassing or you know being cold, that's uh, that's kind of where it, where I I switch over to just a kafara shelters, especially in the late season. Yeah, kind of the same thing with what Frank's saying is with me. Um, if uh, if I'm above tree line and uh, a lot of inclement weather adverse conditions are coming, I'm going to bring a hillebird. Um, there's no wood to burn because it's above tree line. And, uh, you know, a four-season shelter is just a better option. If uh, it's in the wood line, I, I bring a shelter with a stove. Um, it's just... To me, it just it just makes sense. I mean, it, if if I can have a wood fire and stay warm, um, cook on it, and I don't cook on it that much, but something you know, you do whatever, right? The the cook dry, near it. What's that? <laughs> you can cook near it. Oh yeah, exactly. And you can cook on it. I mean, it for sure. But um, I mean, we cook fish on them and steaks and everything else. But if there's wood around, bad weather, um, you know, I'm in the timber. I bring a shelter with a stove. You know, whether it be a sawtooth or a super tarp or whatever teepee. Um, I get into above tree line. Rough weather. We'll generally bring a, a hilleberg. And if it's good weather above tree line, a lot of times we just bring a tarp. Um, like a super tarp or just honestly as much as sunshade as anything else and then obviously the occasional rainstorm um, you know I think people think that water just rushes under the tarps but that's not the case I mean you think about it in your tent and this is what I don't understand people can't wrap their head around it when it's been raining like crazy and you pull your tent up the only dry spot is under your tent well that's not because it has a floor that's because there's like a force field around it, if you've done it correctly, where that awning stops the water. You know, the wa- it hits your shell, your outer shell of your tent, goes to the edges and dis- disperses into the ground. Um, and so unless you set it up in a hole, it's no different than with a, a tarp or a teepee. Um, that's going to be the only dry spot after a rainstorm is under that shelter. And that's because the ground sucks up the water and it doesn't go under the shelter. Um it stops at that edge. Now, if you set it up in a bad spot, completely forget about what I just said because it'll run right under it if you set it up where a water's kind of bowl and collect. But if you do it in a bench or whatever, you're perfectly fine. That's, uh, yeah, and that's an interesting thing, right? Because I'll admit to that my initial thing being like, oh, well, what if it runs under or it blows under? And I, I slept under a tarp, I think, two or three nights on the sheep hunt last year, and, and it was pouring and windy and it was completely fine other than my buddy dance he he liked it even better because he, he was convinced he could see the bears coming <laughs> which i'm like but he i i i don't think that that makes me sleep better but he he likes that ability that 360 visibility so if you like watching for bears in your sleep you can also uh you'll also do well to have a tart now i guess uh in the in the world of tarps and stoves, are you guys still working on developing those, or are those still kind of leftovers from uh, from sort of Patrick's influence? 
I mean, I hate to bring it up again, but I, the stove, I, the new stove, I think is finalized. Um, I've got the shop drawings, the in the, the you know the computer aided or the the three D drawings on my computer that I have to approve. So the the new stove is almost finished. Um, you know we're we're running it through the different titanium options and weights. And I mean, here's the thing: like we don't want to come out with something that doesn't. I mean, we like to test things for a long time to make sure. I think we've what burnt that stove four times outside of the of our offices running out throw wood in it to try to basically make it melt you know collapse whatever find out all the weaknesses and then once it gets approved by the front yard test it goes out to the actual field test and in multiple of those um and so we're pretty close the shelters we're we've been working off and on with new shelters but honestly it's triage um we're so busy with so many other different things sometimes the shelters we're not as quick on as, as other stuff we've had so many people copy ours um that we could like you know try to keep up with the the joneses on certain things but the packs do really well the shelters still do uh pretty dang well as far as sales go so you know eventually we will have um you know new shelters and whether that be that's in you know six weeks or six months we are working on a lot of them it's just when they will be finished who knows that's pretty uh that's pretty cool so i guess one thing that you know you sort of reference but we don't get to hear about a ton is like uh what what specifically you guys do for the military so do you have military contracts or is it just individual people that'll buy your stuff uh, we don't actually have technically contracts. We have very large unit orders. It's not a, a there is a contract involved, but um, it's not a yearly you know contract. A lot of those yearly contracts buckle you down to a very low margin. These are usually tier one groups, whether it be um, seals or rangers or PJs or or just pilots or what what have you. They'll call and and there'll be a request for 180 whoobies. 180 E&Es and whatever that goes to Frank and actually Frank do you want to take this over because I don't do shit on this this is all you <laughs> yeah I mean it's it's not all that intricate but yeah like Aaron's saying it's a, it's a lot of smaller unit orders we don't really deal with the the large stuff and we do um we do a fair amount of um international or international military type stuff and a lot of uh actually a lot of stuff to the to your uh to your kin the Canadians so um, yeah, I mean, basically the, the order will go out to um, sometimes to certain vendors and sometimes it'll come directly through the military. We'll put that order in and then we'll work out some sort of uh, payment terms as well as uh, fulfillment terms and kind of go from there. But um, I would say as opposed to being in the past with the military being a, a big source of our our sales, it's it's not huge anymore and most of it's hunting, but we we still it still keeps us pretty busy. So where where what products are are those guys going to be ordering generally, and, and where are we they going to be seen in the field? You said they're tier one units, Aaron. Uh, it just depends. Some tier one units, um, some regular army units, a lot of air force units. Um, the E and E, the Wooby, the X Ray, the Mountain Warrior, um, AMR. AMR um, the uh, Australian, you know, I'm not even supposed to. Anyway, a, a elite unit over in uh, Australia and in Britain use the uh, AMR, um, and then there's a, just various other stuff that gets ordered as well. Yeah, we uh, we actually sell quite a bit of our sleds. I'd say most of our sled sales go to the uh, to the Canadians. Yeah. Oh, and sleeping bags. We sell sell a shit ton of sleeping bags and parkas to the military as well. Good stuff. That's uh, yeah. That's got to be pretty interesting whenever you're shipping out that kind of thing and, and sort of wondering where it'll end up. 
um, for you guys, whether it's military or, or, you know, sort of bushcraft or hunters or whatever, what is like the most rewarding part of your job? Like, what is the thing that you get the most stoked about? Hunting, <laughs> not being here. Is that bad to say? The most rewarding part of my job is being in the field when I don't have cell service. Just, I was, I was, I was teeing you up for like a well, son. There's nothing better than a handwritten letter from a young boy who's taking his first elk in the backcountry and saying that uh, pack. Uh, <laughs> there is a lot of that, but um, I mean, the most rewarding, as far as on a total business perspective, without a doubt, it is that. Like, man, you saved my life. Whether it be, I mean, not just Kafaru, Kafaru cast. We have guys that 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 send us emails that we've saved their life. They were going to commit suicide. They've lost a hundred pounds. We get the emails of "Man, you saved my back. This was the best product I've ever used." Uh, appreciate the customer service. All of those things are at the top of the list. On a selfish standpoint, I love this job because I get to hunt a lot. On a business standpoint, by far, it's definitely the feedback from the you know from the users and how much we help them. And and you mentioned I saw a thing that you guys are are on Patreon. Now tell us about that. Um without getting into a bash fest because we got a little bit of hate mail over that, Frank and I spend hundreds and hundreds of our own personal dollars of hours of our own personal time as well as our own money to buy a lot of different products to test. Um I can't speak for Frank, but last night a guy called me at 845 at night for an arrow tuning question for a bow company I don't even like. And I spent 45 minutes on the phone with him, and he owns a pack from our competitor. Yeah, I would like you to donate a dollar, buddy. <laughs> but that's where the Patreon thing came from, was literally just to give a little back for Frank and I as far as the gear goes that we buy, our own personal time, stuff like that. And it's just a way to donate to uh, Kafaru Cast. Um, you know, and we got guys say, oh, you get to hunt all the time. Whatever we do, have a great job. I'm definitely not. And we have lots of great gear. But, um, you know, there is, I have no free time whatsoever. Neither does Frank. And a lot of that time is spent not talking about Kafaru products. It's spent talking about calibers, rounds, stoves, headlamps, arrow tune, you know, crazy stuff like that. Yeah. And, and I mean, the thing is with you guys is you're unsponsored except for in association with Kafaru. So. The, what that, that gives people an access to that un, unadulterated opinion. It's unbiased, but I, I, to your point, there's not the same opportunity to earn with it. Like it's not like Kifaru Cast is its own job. It, it it is its own job, but it's not its own income. And and I totally I totally agree with the people that commented. If I bought your pack, isn't that enough? I'm poor. Well, yeah, that's totally enough. I get it, man. I, I we're not saying you have to have to donate, but you know, for the guys that. Um, yeah, I, I hate to not abuse, but, you know, semi-abuse the, the free time. You know, hey, I know you're busy and it's Saturday night, but I just derailed my bow. How do I put it back together? Well, man, I, I appreciate you buying a Kafaru t-shirt, but, um, man, I spent three hours with you to get your bow to tune. You know, it's it's just a thank you, basically. And I'm not whining at all. I'm just, that's just life. That's what goes on with Frank and I. And, um, you know, it could be boots, right? It could be me explaining for a guy... Uh, on footwear, what insole and Archie has, and what boot to go with, and just crazy stuff. It's always busy. Yeah, I can I can understand that. I, I just wanted to give you, a, you sort of an opportunity to clarify that because it might have come out of the blue for some people, and that that answer makes sense. 
so I guess last question here because I don't know how long. Oh, hold like on, one sec. I got a question for you. <laughs> okay. What would you say with Frank and I offer? You're not going to hurt our feelings, just because I don't think people believed us um, when we were uh, some of the numbers I threw out. What would you guess if Frank and I went after optics, archery, clothing, things like that, companies for sponsorships? What do you think Frank and I could make a year from from sponsorships from different companies with with our platform that we have? I would say you guys could pull in north of three hundred thousand. Yeah, based on uh, the viewership and the and the credibility that you guys have in to, between all the different companies. And if you sold sponsorship spots, I think that could be that's kind of where the range is. And uh, that is just a guess. Like, I don't know that for sure, but I do, you know, I work with a lot of the companies in this category and I understand the market, I think, fairly well. And, and yeah, you guys, you guys are, are listened to and for good reason. So I think that, that yeah, don't underestimate. Um, is that Canadian? Is that Canadian or is that U.S.? <laughs> is that Canadian or U.S.? <laughs> you, you tell me, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> what? And, and truly, um, you know, I was trying to explain to guys, Frank could get sponsored personally, I could get sponsored personally, and we could get sponsored through the podcast as totally different entities or, or one and the same, but but different paychecks. Plus, then you could also have ad space and ad time, meaning the commercials that everybody hates that you can also sell those. And then obviously on a YouTube page. And so I know personally, it would be probably... 60 to 70 grand a year for Frank, probably um, just because I've been doing it a longer, uh, you know, 120 plus for me. And then you talk about Kafaru cast, you know, that's going to be another 80 to 180, depending. And we're giving all of that up to try to give non, you know, unbiased views on things. And um, I was a little bit surprised from some of the blowback because we only asked for like a dollar. So that's kind of where it came from. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, if people people just don't see that side of things as much and they don't understand that uh, probably a big part of the reason they love listening to you is because you are. Well, look at how, how all the other podcasts have gone, not all of them, but a couple specifically um, and the products that they promote and things like that. And, and it's not because they're the best. They're just they have to say it is. It's because they had the best paycheck coming. Um, and that's, I totally get it, right? You got to make a living. You got to feed the kids and the family. Uh, Frank and our giant are just in a position where we don't have to do that. We want to keep it that way as long as we can. Yeah, it makes good sense. So, and uh, so, yeah, so I guess last question, what, what pack are you guys going to be using the next time you go hunting and why? Um, well, the next time I go hunting, I'm probably actually going to have a shape charge on my back because I'm going to be running after dogs and uh, giant black bears with Bart Lancaster. Let's talk about the next backpacking trip. <laughs> I'll be running the 44 mag. <laughs> Why? Uh, it's the newest, coolest thing for one and two. I mean, that was something Frank and I worked really hard uh, to, to get to where it is, and it checks it. It, it is the most sought after pack we have ever sold and checks the most boxes and is the most versatile pack by far I think is on the market today um it's not the lightest um but I don't think you can find a more versatile pack that can can do anything than than that pack and that's just we put a ton of time into it what about you Frank 
yeah, I mean, it, it's it's going to be have to either be that or probably one of our muskeg bags. Like I said, I, I'm more of a simplistic type of guy, so um, even though I do love all the features that 44 Mac have, which I mean, it, like Aaron said, it's it's pretty well stacked up with uh, just about everything you could you could want. Um, I also <clears throat> like a simple pack like our muskeg bags, which is basically just a big duffel with a uh, offset center zipper, and you can attach two pockets to it. So I'm more of on along the lines of simplistic, but um, it is pretty sweet to uh, have the opportunity to use this all the new new gear that we have um, out. So um, it it'll be between the two of those. So well, and in in, in in all honesty, it's it's not too much different for me when Frank and I go 14 miles in or 10 miles in or 60 vertical miles in eight days. We will uh, I'll run a muskeg, and when I'm going in, maybe not as far. I'm more opticed up, um, you know, than I would run the 44 mag. Yeah. I, uh, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. So, what, what is the biggest problem that you guys are looking to solve next? Like, what is what's the what's the thing that you're working? Is there anything you can you can tell us about what you're working on? We're running out of room in the building. That's a pretty big problem. Um, we've grown too much, so that would be problem one. I would Stop say. Stop buying our shit. We need a new building. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. We need more than a dollar at Patreon. We got to add to this thing. I would say. Um, Keeping up with supply and demand would be one. And two, getting the word out. There's no doubt we need to redo the YouTube page. We need to do a better job um, uh, of telling Frank and I's story in the field. And not just our story, but the story of what we're doing, why we're doing it, what we're using, and, and when, and all of those things. And we're going to start working on getting a lot more things on film. Um, you know, I don't think people... Maybe they do realize how much time Frank and I are in the field, but there's a lot to be learned that I would say both of us take for granted that we could teach people and instruct. Um, and not just about Kafaru gear, but as a, as a byproduct, learn all about Kafaru gear, why we're using what we're using, and uh, get that up on the YouTube page and then get more informational tutorial videos about our gear on the YouTube page. Uh, that's my perspective, but even though I am in charge here, um, I am a horrible boss when it comes to that. I usually take everyone's vote. So, Frank, what do you think? Yeah, I'd like to get more video. Um, <clears throat> I tried to take a little bit of video in, in BC, which is going to be a very, very redneck film. I've, uh, <laughs> I forgot to bring a tripod, so it's going to be a little shaky. Um, but, yeah, I mean, even though... We, we don't have the uh, rock house motion type skills. I think people still somewhat appreciate the uh, the uh, redneck content that we put out. So My deer hunt, yeah, I, just, I turned the uh, the GoPro on every night where it looked like I was in a concentration camp and told everyone how much <laughs> I sucked each day. And then the final was Frank filming me shooting one from like a mile away. So probably not the... We're slightly below rock house. Not much. <laughs> just a few percent away from what you guys produce. It's like 97% yeah, it's kind of, away. it's kind of the same with us in the backpack. <laughs> <laughs> my, my main backpack design was one time when I was younger, I was, I was trying to carry goose decoys out in the field when I was a little kid, and I took some grocery bags and, and cut holes in them and put a hockey stick through it, and I could carry eight goose decoys on one hockey stick, and that shit really worked. So, <laughs> Damn uh, Canadians. Like we're saying, just a few, uh, just a few percent away. <laughs> Anyways, lads, I uh, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to ask you all these questions. I think that transparency is one of the things that sets you apart. And I'm gonna go. I gotta go take some pictures of some RVs, and I'll probably immediately think of some questions that I should ask. But uh, it's it's cool learning more about the product on a personal standpoint. I love it. I haven't broken it. Um, I'm confident in it, which I think is important. And I, I recommend that if you can try and 
try one out because they're it, it's it's good shit and these guys really work hard to make the best. So that's all for now, folks. You go keep your broad head sharp, your eyes keen. <laughs> I'm just, man, hey. I said I, I totally botched my Ron Burgundy clothes. Uh, what did uh, he say San Diego meant? A whale's vagina. Big clot. Yeah. San Diego. <laughs> <laughs> I slept with Veronica Corningstone. Oh, Lord. Well, man, I, I appreciate everything you do, and uh, as well as the friendship. And, and I think I have Logan talked into you and, and her coming down for a backpack fishing trip, possibly. I don't know if I she told she you that or no not. I have no idea the physical consequences that that'll bring with it, but I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> I, uh, I like it. Yeah, and, and the the best part is is, is <laughs> that Snyder will call Logan, thinking that Logan is me. <laughs> he still gets us mixed up. So uh, be, Logan will text you. She'll be like, "Hey, Snyder just called me. I think he thought I was you until I answered the phone." <laughs> uh, it's it's bad, and I got an iPhone and lost my contacts. I will hurry with this story, but Matt and Nick met us, total coincidence, and I think I had the hand infection going on, and I was about to poop my pants, and I felt so horrible because I was literally not wanting to say the first meeting with Matt and Nick that I had to poo in the store, (laughs) but I had to run. I'm like, hey, guys, great seeing you, and I had to, like, literally go, and then I came back out, and they were gone, and I felt like such a shithole I had to get a hold of you to try to get a hold of them to let them know what was going on because I'm like, that probably didn't help my uh, persona of uh, being personable with other people. Um, That was last year, and I don't even know if they brought that up to you, but I was laughing because I came back out, and I'm like, well, I screwed that up. They probably think I'm a dick. Yeah, it was was pretty (laughs) funny. They were like, yes. Kind of weird, <laughs> and and I just kind of let him tell the story, and then I filled him in, and it, it made sense. I was actually headed to meet him that day, so they there might have been like four hours of them thinking you're an asshole, but we still, we fixed it. So. <laughs> You're good to go. <laughs> well, that's good, uh, Lord. Well, yeah, I, I appreciate everything, man, and I, I uh, appreciate you getting on here. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Perfect. Well, you boys have a great day. Eh? Yeah, just just keep giving her. All right, there, eh? See ya. Yeah. See you, lads.